0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our Christmas message series, Eyewitness, finding your Christmas story in theirs, where you're invited to find your story in the extraordinary experiences of the men and women who witnessed the very first Christmas. Together, we'll see that no matter who we are, the coming of the Christ was for us. Every good story has a tension or problem that needs to be resolved. If you ever follow any good story, right? We love stories. Movies are stories. The stories we tell, the books we read, right? Really good stories involve tension. They involve questions. They involve challenges. They involve the little things that are kind of brought into the story that cause us to kind of lean in and go, well, how's that problem going to get solved? what conclusion is going to happen within that story as well? Good storytellers leave you in that tension. They don't always resolve things right away, or they raise questions that cause us to kind of lean in and consider deeper realities. Robert McKee is often known sometimes as like the godfather of modern screenwriting. He was a professor at USC for many years, and he taught us seminar on screenwriting that was famous. A whole generation of screenwriters have been influenced by Robert McKee, and one of his most famous works is simply a book called Story, where he kind of unpacks the kind of rules of good storytelling. One of his well-known quotes in that book is he says, you do not keep the audience's interest by giving it information, but by withholding information. By not immediately giving you the answer, but by withholding just enough to kind of cause you to lean in a little bit and kind of go, what's that all about? In the Gospels of Jesus Christ, we come to a masterclass on storytelling. Stories that are meant to reveal to us the truth of who Jesus is. The Gospels, despite our kind of popular notion that they're kind of like biographies, actually aren't that. That's not their intention. They're written as theological narratives, stories that have a point about God, about who he is, about what he's doing in the world in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And in that, they're written like any good stories, true stories about true events and true realities, but they often raise a little bit of intrigue when you pay attention. They can cause you as master storytellers to lean in a little bit. And the gospel of Matthew that we're going to look at today is no different. Matthew kind of gives you his theological point right from the very beginning of his gospel. If you're with me in Matthew, you can look at it right at the very first verse in chapter 1. He says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here, right at the very beginning, Matthew is making clear the claim of what his story is going to tell you, that Jesus is in fact the Christ. Now, that's not his last name, right? That's a title. Christ is simply the Greek word meaning anointed or anointed one. It's the translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, the promised one of God. And that Jesus is, in fact, this person. And as that person, he's going to fulfill the promised covenants that God had made. That's why Abraham and David come into the story. God, long ago, to the forefather of the Jewish faith, to Abraham, had promised that through him, he was going to bring a blessing, a blessing for the entire world. Later, through the great King David, God would make a promise to his people that he, in fact, was going to send another king in the line of David who would establish God's kingdom and his throne forever. That though the world was broken, God was, in fact, through an anointed one, going to bring a redeemer who would redeem a lost people and a broken world and establish God's righteous reign for all eternity. And Matthew, from the very beginning wants you to know that he believes that that's Jesus. That he is, in fact, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And so he goes on, then, to show you Jesus' lineage. Now, we're not going to unpack all these verses, but what I want you to actually notice in that is, like a master storyteller, right? Oftentimes we get lost in the, like, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, so was the father of so-and-so. David actually hides a little bit of intrigue that's meant to cause you to lean into the story just a little bit. You actually see it in verse 15 and 16. Look at it with me. So he lists all these names. And then he says towards the end, And Eliad was the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, and Joseph the father of Jesus. Wait. It's not what he says. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, and Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ or the Messiah. Matthew introduces a problem in the text. There's all this list of fathers, but then when he gets to Joseph, Joseph is not initially listed as Jesus' father, he's simply listed as the husband of Mary. Of whom Jesus was born. And in this, he kind of raises an issue. Wait, if Jesus, if Joseph, sorry, if Joseph isn't Jesus' dad, then how is Jesus a son of David? Because he's just shown you this whole lineage of the line from Abraham to David to Joseph, but then doesn't complete. The circle. So that's the first problem. The second problem, if Joseph is not the father of Jesus, then who is? Is this a scandal or is there something else going on here that Matthew wants you to lean in a little bit and begin to see? Well, this morning we're going to look at the story of Joseph and Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. And let me read it for you, and then we'll unpack a few things out of it, so you can just kind of hear what Matthew wants you to lean into. Starts this way, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Matthew's kind of created some intrigue to lean in, and then he draws you into the story of Joseph. But Joseph's story begins with another problem, right? He's betrothed to Mary. Now, betrothal in that day was serious. It's the idea of engagement, but in Jewish culture, it was even more than engagement. It actually carried a legal connotation. So in our day, when someone goes to get married right? They get engaged, they make the promise, and then when it's time to get married, they go get their marriage license, they have their ceremony, they sign the license, and it becomes legally official. In Jesus's day, when you went and became engaged, that was actually where the legal, they didn't have marriage certificates, but that's where you would have signed the marriage certificate. And then there was a time where the husband would prepare for the wife to come live with him, and build a home. And then they would join together in the marriage ceremony. So they're legally married at this point, awaiting for the day when they will complete that through their marriage certificate, live together, and consummate their marriage. But in this process, Mary is pregnant. And Joseph doesn't know why. He naturally feels betrayed. So we have one problem Who's Jesus's dad? What's going on here? We have another problem, which is Mary's pregnant. Now, I want to jump down and, contrary to Robert, resolve a little bit of the tension for a moment because I want us to then circle back and see this passage kind of in a unique light. So look at the very end in the last verse. It says, the last phrase of verse 29, and he called his name Jesus. So I've already read the story for you. You've heard that this is a miraculous conception. But how the story ends is by the author resolving the tension he rose at the beginning. Joseph names Jesus. Now that's a big deal in the text, right? It's a signal that Joseph has received Jesus as his adopted son. That he has now become his legal heir and comes under the line of David. To name someone is to take your parental authority over them, right? When uh, my second son was born, my wife and I wrestled a lot with his name of what we were gonna name him. We had a couple different options and we hadn't settled on one. And so when he was born and they set him on my wife's chest, she looked at me and she said, what is his name, right? And I said, Xavier Jacob, and that's his name. My wife didn't turn to the nurse and say, hey, what's his name gonna be, right? She didn't ask the doctor, right? You don't have a baby and you go like, let's take a vote. Like, no, To name a child is, is the parental right. There's something significant in that. And that's what Matthew wants you to see. That what begins in attention, he resolves here by low noting that Joseph takes his place as Jesus' adopted father, and in doing so, Jesus joins the legal line of David. Matthew's entire point is to show the way in which God worked in the life of Joseph to take attention and bring it to resolution. Now, Matthew's main point is clear in this passage, that Jesus is the Messiah and fulfills the promised prophecy. He is the one the virgin has conceived and born, the anointed one of God. But I think that from the get-go of his story, Matthew also wants us to consider the reality of Joseph. He's the very first character that enters the story. He's the first one who kind of illuminates some of the tension and the challenge of what surrounds this Messiah's arrival. And I don't think Joseph is just meant to be a passerby in the story of Jesus, but that he's actually set up to be an example of what faith looks like when the Messiah arrives in an unexpected way. One commentator that I read this week, New Testament professor Craig Keener, says this, that Matthew invites us to learn from Joseph's character about fidelity, just meaning faithfulness, discipline, and preferring God's honor above our own. That as he begins the tension and he resolves the tension, he wants you to lean in for a moment to the life of Joseph, this first eyewitness of Jesus, and to learn from him what does faith look like when the Messiah shows up on the scene. And I think what we see in the life of Joseph and that I want to unpack for a few minutes today is that true faith, when the Messiah shows up, results in a righteous response. Where there's true faithfulness, where there's genuine belief, when Jesus arrives and flips things on his head as he does here and will continue to do, that true faith results in responding rightly to the arrival of the Messiah. So what does this look like in the life of Joseph, and what can we learn from his example of faith? Three things that I want you to consider about what true faith looks like that results in a righteous response and the response that we see in Joseph. The first thing that we're going to see in this story is that true faith cultivates just character. True faith cultivates just character. Look back at me at the beginning of the story, right? Let's kind of unpack these verses again. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, before they've consummated their marriage physically, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, we get the first clue of Joseph's character then in verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Right? The assumption of the text is that Joseph doesn't know that she's conceived by the Holy Spirit yet. That, that hasn't been revealed to him. All he knows is that this woman he's engaged to is suddenly pregnant and he has no idea how it happens. So you can naturally sense he's got a feeling of betrayal. Like, who's the man that she was with? How did this happen? Right? like You can naturally feel what I've legally agreed to has now been Broken. And Joseph, according to the Old Testament law, has every right to go after Mary at this point, before he knows the truth, with the hammer of the law, right? Deuteronomy 22 reminds us that those that would commit adultery, that would break a legally binding marriage, were guilty under the Old Testament law of capital punishment. They could be put to death, and Joseph could go that route. He had every single right. But the text makes an interesting note about his character. It combines two phrases together to show something about who he is. It says, being a just man or a righteous man. The idea of somebody who sought to walk with God rightly, because he was this in his character, he was unwilling to put her to shame. And so he took another route that would have been allowed to him by the law, to call two witnesses privately and to give a certificate of divorce. This was the route that Joseph had decided to go. And in this, we see that he's a man of character. He's a man who cultivates a heart after God, who doesn't just seek to follow the written letter of the law, but who actually seeks to live in the world in a just way. Mary, at this point, would have been a lowly, probably teenage girl who had very little rights in the world. And Joseph, being in a position of power, certainly could have thrown the book at her, but he decides not to. Maybe he recalled verses like Hosea 6.6 6, where God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Maybe he remembered verses like Micah 6.8 where God reminds him, what is the will of man but to do justly, to love steadfast love, and to walk humbly with God? You see, Joseph was a man of godly and just character. And instead of acting simply in the strict interpretation of the law where he could most push off the issue of Mary, he instead resolves to respond correctly with mercy and compassion for her. You see, true faith cultivates a just character, a character that models a God of mercy, a God of love, not a God who completely ignores the law, but looks at the lowly and says, how can I lift up this person in this situation. In many ways Matthew is introducing a theme here that will run throughout his gospel which is there is a greater understanding of the law that is present in Jesus. You'll see this four chapters later in Jesus's sermon on the mount where he'll continually say you have heard it said but I say that the law is meant to point to the deeper reality of who God is and how we are to live in the world and Joseph models that for us from the beginning. I read in a devotional this week on the Greek New Testament, one scholar says in this gospel, it becomes clear that for Jesus and Matthew, mercy and compassion are not at odds with righteousness, but are crucial marks of righteousness. That the way in which we follow the law is marked by the character of a God of mercy and steadfast love and compassion. And that's what Joseph models for us from the get-go. But the story continues, and we see kind of the second characteristic of Joseph's face in this moment. It says in verse 20, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." The second thing that we see that true faith comes in its righteous response is it trusts the plan of God. Now, this doesn't come right away for Joseph, right? Let's be clear. Actually, it's interesting to me the way we translate that word, but as he considered. In the original Greek, that word also carries the idea of anger underneath it. It's not just like Joseph sat one day to ponder, hmm, I wonder what this is all about, that my fiance's pregnant. This is an interesting conundrum that I'm in. Like, no, the idea in the word there is that he's actually stewing over it. Like, have you ever had something happen to you where you're like so angry, you're muttering on your breath? Like, how oh, could this come on? This is ridiculous. Right? Like, Joseph, I, I imagine Joseph had all these plans for his life laid out, right? Like, he's on that verge of that big moment. Like, he had big dreams. But what he was going to do with his work, he found his wife, they're engaged, he's getting ready to prepare their home for them to get married. I'm sure he dreamed of family one day, I'm sure he dreamed of the way he was going to continue to serve his community where they were in Nazareth, continue his work and job, and suddenly finds out that his fiancée's pregnant. And naturally he feels betrayed, and naturally he's kind of stewing over it. Oh, how could this happen? Have you ever had your life interrupted by something unexpected? Ever had a moment where you're like, come on, God. That? And while he considers this, an angel shows up. And the angel reveals God's plan to Joseph. Listen, bro. I don't know, that's not what he said, but that's what I feel like, right? Like, I know you think you've been betrayed here, but God's actually doing a greater work. He highlights that Joseph is a son of David, that he carries the lineage of the king. And he reminds him, don't be afraid. God's at work in the midst of this. That thing that you think is actually betrayal isn't. It's God conceiving the Messiah through the Holy Spirit in your fiance. And she's going to have that son. And your job is to take him as your adopted kid, to name him and to raise him. Because one day that baby is going to save his people from their sins. And he reminds Joseph that that's going to come in fulfillment of a specific prophecy, likely a prophecy he knew. That the prophet Isaiah had said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God invites Joseph into his plan. And although initially he's shocked as God reveals this plan, what we continue to see is that Joseph trusts God. Now, it's easy in some sense, right? It's easy to look and say, yeah, if an angel showed up and told me this is what my life was about, of course it'd be easy to trust. But is it? Because why does the angel tell him, need to tell him, don't be scared? Even when we know God's plan sometimes, that doesn't just suddenly make it easy, that doesn't suddenly erase all the questions. You have to imagine Joseph had to think, what does this mean? To raise the Savior of the world? I'm not equipped for that job. I'm not ready for that call. But a heart of faith trusts the plan of God. We might not get that same level of detail that Joseph gets in our lives, but there's times where God calls and we trust and respond in obedience. And I think, Joseph models that for us, that a heart of true faith, even when they don't know how everything will play out, still trust the Lord in his call. I remember when my wife and I felt called to leave our previous ministry and to move here to Michigan almost two and a half years ago now. All right, it, was, it was hard. We'd spent ten years in a ministry we had worked, and it wasn't as hard for me. I was in a place of kind of consternation. I was struggling with the place I was at and what was happening. But my wife, she was killing it. She was doing her dream job. She had a great community. She was like all these things. And suddenly her husband came and says, I think God's leading us somewhere else, like in the Michigan of all places. I mean, she's from Columbus. You got to know that's tough, right? But I watched through that season a heart of what faith looks like. We didn't know where yet. We didn't even know all the details. We didn't know what a great community this would be, and we've loved it over the last two years. But I think back to the moment of the call. You see, that's where Joseph's at. He doesn't know the details. He doesn't know what's going to come. All he knows is God's inviting him into the plan and to take a step of faith. And I think in some sense, he sets an example that true faith that the righteous response that we have of true faith is to trust when we don't have all the answers. I think of people in this room. I mean, Chuck and Sandy Hall are sitting right here. Spent 25 years, right? More than 25 years in Japan. You think when God called them to leave their life and their family, that was before the Internet, friends, (laughs) that they would knew all the details of how God would work. Sometimes we don't get that detail, but a heart of faith says, I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust that God has a plan. He's going to work this out. Joseph's in anxiety, but he still trusts the Lord. And out of that trust, he shows us the last example of faith, which is not only do we trust the plan of God, but we, a heart of faith, obeys the word of God. Look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him hear that again. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You see, Joseph ultimately models for us what true faith looks like by his obedience. was brought to my attention this week that when it comes to the story of Joseph, especially in Matthew, we never actually hear Joseph speak. He never talks. Listen to one commentator. Francis Bruner says this, in the New Testament, Joseph never speaks. In Matthew's gospel, where Joseph appears more than anywhere else, he does a number of important things, but we never hear him speak. In the first chapter of Matthew, Joseph overcomes initial hesitation and obeys the divine summons to marry the questionable Mary. Later in the second chapter of Matthew, Joseph is commanded to flee to Egypt with his child and his mother. Still later on, counseled again by a gene, Joseph is instructed to return with the family from Egypt to the land of Israel and then settle with them in the north of Galilee. In every scene, Joseph simply acts without speaking. His speech is to do the will of God. We may call him Quiet Joseph. His hallmark is obedience. Prompt, simple, and unspectacular obedience. And in this sense, Joseph prefigures one important feature in Matthew's understanding of righteousness. To be righteous is simply to obey the word of God. Joseph just obeys. He walks in faith And in a heart of faith, he obeys what God calls him to do time and time again. He's kind of, in some ways, the unsung hero of Jesus' birth story because he's just faithful to do what God says to do. One of our campus pastors, C.T. elders, he pastors the Lapeer campus, played college football, and he wrote to us this week how he, uh, one of his favorite positions in football is the offensive line because they're the unsung heroes of any football game, right? Football games, as I've been taught from a little, since I was a little kid, football games are won and lost in the trenches. Doesn't matter how great your quarterback is, doesn't matter what kind of receivers you have, you have a bad offensive line, your offense isn't going anywhere. Yet how many of you, after a spectacular game, have ever heard an offensive lineman interview? How many of you have ever seen the right guard pulled into an interview and say, tell us, how were you the hero of this game? What did you do to win? No. Right? They're the silent, unsung heroes of the football game. They're the guys out there in 20 degrees with no sleeves on, battling for their team to win. And in some ways, that's Joseph, right? Yeah, he doesn't talk, but he's there. He's present. He just obeys what God says to do. And through that, God works in incredible ways to bring the revealing of Jesus and also to set an example for us that sometimes the call for us is simply to be obedient to God's word in our lives. Even when things are challenging, are we willing to be faithful? Because that's how Jesus is put on display. He's not just put on display through words. He's put on display through actions. I was reminded of this on Friday. I've been listening to this podcast for the last several weeks. It's one of the most popular Christian podcasts right now called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and it documents a church in Seattle that was super popular in the early 2000s. And the reporter kind of documents their story, how they began, they grew, and then they like completely exploded and imploded. And part of the reason they did is because they had a hyper-domineering culture um, within their lead team and their senior pastor. He basically was a jerk who ruled with a heavy hand, and he had executives around him that did. And the author kind of documents through this whole story the pain that was caused by this kind of leadership in the church. And when you listen over the course of the episodes, man, it like tears your heart as you hear the brokenness and the reality, and it. It constantly had to remind myself back to Jesus to say, like, Jesus, you're the perfect shepherd of your church. Men are imperfect. There will be wrongs and hurts in this story. But on Friday, I was listening to kind of the culminating final episode. And they kind of tell the story of the lead pastor, who is this dynamic, charismatic, I mean, incredible preacher and speaker of God's word. But how when the church left and when push came to shove, when the challenge arose, man, he pieced out as fast as he could and left the church in shambles, and for people to pick up the pieces. But in the course of the podcast, they tell another story of another one of the executives at the time, who during their kind of popularity also ruled in many ways and led with a really heavy hand. I mean, they document many of the staff that kind of note just how harsh and challenging this guy was. But what was interesting was they went back and they told this story about how a few years after he had kind of left and the church had closed, how he had a really awakening from the spirit of the pain that he had caused so many people. And they talk about how despite all the pain he caused, he realized that God was calling him to repent before those he had hurt. And so they, they tell the story how he went back to Seattle where they were, and he literally for three days set up Uh, two-hour windows at Panera to meet with any staff member that he could, that he had hurt and harmed, to simply say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And to take ownership of the pain that he had caused in that season. And they document stories of how, through that, he worked to reconcile relationships. I mean, literally at one point, I'm in my garage listening to this story between him and a female staff member, how they had reconciled together, and I'm just like weeping in tears because I'm reminded of the power of the gospel. That where there's repentance, Jesus forgives. That where there's brokenness, reconciliation could happen. It's an incredible, powerful moment that I was just sitting and listening as it came. But then it dawned on me. This guy didn't do this with any fanfare. He didn't blow a trumpet or preach a sermon. He just knew he was wrong. And so he went in the power of the gospel to make it right. And while that senior pastor is still bloviating a whole bunch of stuff about Jesus, he doesn't present the gospel anymore. But this guy does, because he did what was right in repentance. He did what was right by his actions and what God was calling him to do. You see, it's obedience to the word of God that puts Jesus on display. It's obedience to say when i'm wrong i repent it's obedience to say when things are challenging i'm still going to follow god's ways over the easy way out see that's where we show what a true heart of faith looks like the true faith genuinely results in righteous response robert mckee says this of his stories he says true character is revealed in the choices a human being makes under pressure The greater the pressure, the deeper the revelation, the truer the choice to the character's essential nature. What we see in Joseph is a man of true faith. And when the pressure was on, although he struggled and although it was challenging, he was willing to trust his God and to walk in obedience. And, friends, you and I have that same opportunity. And in fact, I think God actually reveals in this passage the key to that opportunity. I love 23, that the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The heart of the gospel is that we can't walk in that sort of obedience on our own strength. But that God, in fact, has made a way in which he can be with us in which he can strengthen us, in which his spirit can empower us to live lives of true faith. At the end of the day, true faith that results in a righteous response comes from a true faith that receives God in the person of Jesus. That's ultimately what Joseph did. He received the promised Messiah. And you and I can do that same thing today. And you can put your faith in Jesus Christ and trust him to be with you forever. And from there, you can walk in true faith, in true character, in true justice, in true righteousness until God calls us home. May that be so. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the example that Joseph sets for us. (laughs) What we see put on display here, God, I know my heart and our hearts long to have that same sort of character and that same sort of faith. But we confess this morning, we are incapable of that apart from the work of your spirit in our lives, apart from the work of your son who pays the penalty for our sin and who has risen again to give us new life. So would you come right now to each one in this place Would you remind us of the truth of Jesus and his arrival? That he has come to put an end to sin. That he is, in fact, the true king, the promised one. Would you allow us, no matter if it's for the first time or the thousandth time, to once again fix our faith and our hearts on him? And to live from that place of genuine faith. And may from that you produce righteousness in our life so that you would be glorified in us. We ask these things in your holy and precious name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself today.